Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. Got most of the crew here tonight. I'm going to pass it over first to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. And I still have. I thought I fixed that. <laughs> and uh, otherwise, you can shoot me. If you don't have Instagram, you can shoot me an email at SpartanGrown at gmail.com, and I can help you with all your cannabis growing questions. Happy to have you back. And uh, next up, Dr. MJ. Hey, yes, I'm back. I was like traveling around. I got to meet some cool people. I got to meet Small Poker and Christy Wannabe and Berkshire Bud. I was back in New York for the last couple of weekends. So um, anyways, I'm back here and I came home to like a tropical storm, but not much of a tropical storm at this point. So excited for the show. I'm going to have to bail after about an hour though. So no worries. We're happy to have you for the first hour. And next up, I'll pass it over to Matthew Gates. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Matthew Gates, IPM specialist. So yeah, you can check me out for pest management information on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, and on my website, Zenthanol.com for professional inquiries. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. I actually have a report for us if uh, we want to go over it while Dr. Coco's here, or we could devote another time to it. It's about UV lighting. It's a recent publication by Bruce Bugby. That could be certainly fun to look at, and uh, we'll go ahead and finish up the introductions, and then we'll maybe discuss a few potential topics and go from there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pass it next to Noah V. Groa. Hey, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I'm Noah V. Groa. Uh, I've been uh, out of town myself, when I went to the beach one weekend, but uh, happy to be back. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Noah V. Groa with two E's, and uh, most weeks here, and happy to be here. Happy to have you back. And last and certainly not least of the panelists who's with us so far, the American one. Hello, everyone. Jack and panel, good to see you. I don't know if I'm muted or not because, uh, yeah, I'm on a new device, but can you guys hear me? Yes. Very good. All right. And everyone in chat, it's always good to see everyone or, or uh, read your thoughts and whatnot. And yeah, I am the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore 18s on the IG. And yeah, hit me up if you want to uh, ask any questions or maybe get some beans. It's always good to be here. Great to have you back as well as the rest of the panel. And I think that since Matthew has uh, some science and uh, Bugby is a pretty large name in our community, I'd say the home grow side of things, he's shared lots of information. I'd be curious to uh, at least uh, see the abstract or title. If you want to, I'll go ahead and make sure that we can allow multiple people to share a screen, which is the case currently. And um, maybe we could look over that. And if the chat seems interested, then we can take it from there. Yeah, that sounds yeah. good for me. Let me bring yeah. it up. Yeah, Other uh, thoughts were uh, going to be either a Q&A, which we've done a lot of recently. And then my other thought was, how to uh, track and reduce input costs of your grow. So those are like the few things that I, we could put on the docket for this evening. And I think starting with the scientific paper while doc is here for sure and uh, see where that takes us. I like the input costs um, idea. That's an interesting one. I think there's a lot of hidden costs that people aren't sensitive to. I agree. And um, even just I changing costs. That. Brian, 4.20 p.m. recently posted, and I think I might have referenced last show or shared it on my story, The he does quarterly the costs of each uh, input for like the top 10 main fertilizer companies. So like 
you know, cost per gallon or something like that breakdown. So that's a something that kind of re-alerted me to the fact that, oh yeah, that does change, you know, each quarter as businesses, you know, change and raise prices and things like that. But Matthew has the paper up here and uh, Matthew, why don't you go ahead and uh, talk us through the title and a little bit of the abstract and just general uh, idea. Yeah. And so this will be new for me too. I just, uh, I just downloaded it, not like 30 minutes ago. So I don't have like, you know, my normal setup where I've looked through it and I have some cool points. So we can just go, you know, by the seat of our pants here, but uh, the title is Elevated UV Photon Fluxes Minimally Affected Cannabinoid Concentration in a High CBD Cultivar. And yeah, Bruce Bugby is uh, one of the authors, along with uh, Mitchell Westermoreland and Paul Suma. And uh, yeah, let's go to the abstract here. It says ultraviolet photons, UV, can damage critical biochemical processes, right? We know this. Plants synthesize photoprotective pigments that absorb UV to minimize damage. Cannabinoids absorb UV, so increased UV has the potential to increase cannabinoid synthesis. Studies in the 1980s, which I believe we've also uh, posted on this here channel, provided some evidence for this hypothesis in, a, in low cannabinoid cultivars, but recent studies did not find an increase in cannabinoid synthesis with increasing UV in high cannabinoid cultivars. These studies use low UV photon fluxes. So we examined the effect of higher UV photon fluxes. We used fluorescent UV lights with 55% UVB, which is 280 to 314 nanometers, and 45% UVA, which is 315 to 399 nanometers. Treatments began three weeks after the start of short days and continued for five weeks until harvest. Established waiting factors were used to calculate the daily biologically effective UV photon flux, which they designate here as 280 to 399 nanometers. Daily UV PFD BE, levels were 0, 0 0.02, 0 0.05, and 0.11 moles per meter square to whatever that D to the power of 1 is. I'm not sure. Is that distance? Probably. I believe that they're dealing with DLIs. That's just going to be per day. Per day. Okay, of course. Okay, that makes more sense. With a background daily, uh, daily light integral, right, of 30 moles. Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah. This provided a ratio of daily UV PFD to DLI uh, of 41 to 218% of summer sunlight in the field. Cannabinoid concentration was 3 to 13% higher than the control in UV-treated plants, but the effect was not statistically significant. FV to FM and flower yield were reduced only in the highest UV treatment. These data support recent literature and lead us to conclude that an elevated flux of UV photons is not an effective approach to increase cannabinoid concentration in high cannabinoid cultivars and seen. Yep. So that sort of adds to that body of literature, I would say, that really calls into question the, the efficacy of using UV. Well, and even with a 3 to 13% increase, that wasn't significant enough. I kind of, my, for some reason, my mind couldn't really work out the math on that. But what was the length of time that the plants were exposed to the UV light? I think five weeks like five total, hours. I'm reading this, right? Oh, I see five what you mean. Weeks. Five weeks, five weeks. Okay. And it started three weeks into the flowering cycle. But for how long yeah. per day? Like, was uh, it exposed all day during its whole life cycle? Or was it just, you know, flashes that. of UV? 
Yeah, it may be that it's just turned on with the the regular light. Okay. That's sort of what it, it sounds like. That they didn't suggest that it was on for a specific subset of the lights on time. So interesting. This is wavelengths, which they went right up to the low end of blue, which is the four hundred nanometer. But we've talked about that a little bit in the past. The different EVs. Yeah. Uh, it's a very complicated graph. Um, <laughs> they decided to use the space that would give you a little bit of like space to look at the graph and then do what I do, unfortunately, which is put a bunch of text there. That's great. That's what the space is, a bunch more text. <laughs> I think they're just descri uh, describing the specificity of the UV and really showing it. It looks like, yeah, it looks like those, those hours right there looks like a one hour duration, a two and a half like hour two duration. And a half and a five, five exactly. Hour. Yeah. Exactly. So there's even, even in the one hour duration, it wasn't, it's not looking even, you know, I was thinking maybe if you minimize the amount of length, you could still get a benefit out of it, but not really. Maybe in some niche and discrete ways, perhaps, but uh, yeah, it seems like, uh, yeah. And again, I haven't looked at any of this or whatever. So here's a, another, another diagram I saw briefly, figure two. Uh, which says photo of plants at harvest in rep two plants became increasingly chlorotic. So yellowing and damaged with increasing UV PFD BE. Um, that uh, acronym was calculated using weighting factors from Flint and Caldwell in 2003. So from another research. Report. Um, and I guess you can kind of, you can kind of see that. Uh, let me try to make this bigger for us. Props to the authors for having a picture that actually scales up and down. Like I, I take That's so many nice. graphics research reports that like, um, you know, that happens a lot. Where that's Would be not blurred at this point. Yeah, very blurry. Yeah, it is. What do we think? I don't. I see. I, I'm so skeptical to to blame any of that chlorosis on just the the variable in question because every plant's a little bit different, especially sort of under our nutrient regimes. So it, it could, I mean, who knows what causes the plants to be the, those different shades, but I wouldn't necessarily, I don't, I don't right. see a lot in those pictures that makes me like, oh, there's the smoking gun. There's the chlorosis right there, officer. The furthest yeah, right one I is do. the worst though. I see that, yeah, the yeah. one on the far right is like paler than the others, but plants. I kind of agree. I feel like it's like, um, it's a nice visual, I guess, but yeah, like did they control for all the Things it could possibly be. I'm sure that they tried to, but it's just, you know, the, the only way to really control for that, Matthew, is sample size. And yes. it doesn't sound like a huge sample size here. So, it, like, you need to be doing, if you really want to draw sort of more subtle inferences like that, we need to see it happening over a large sample of the plants and sort of a consistent relationship. Do we know what the sample was or how many plants that they, they played with? I bet we could find out. Let's look at the materials and methods. Always good Always to look. Really important sort of aspect, I think, of analyzing these papers, not just like sort of how well they grew, but like, is this just about those four plants or is there sort of like, are those just representatives of, you know, larger sets of plants? Yeah, if they just pulled like one of those out of a room of a thousand or a hundred in that condition. Examples, right. Well, I found it a little interesting too in the, in the opening paragraph, how it, called the three percent increase in well, i don't remember if it's cannabinoids or terpenes or what they said what they CBD. said 
CBD, but a 3% increase was not significant. I'm like, well, I don't know. Some people might consider that a little bit significant. Well, it wasn't statistically significant. Yeah, so like the increase wasn't. Oh, I see. Sampling issue that, you know, you didn't take enough. You don't have enough to know whether it's it's really consistent across a larger group or if that's just sort of, you know, a little bit of variance that you always see from individual to individual. But that's right. You, you make a good point because, and like Dr. Cook, like that part of that is sampling. Well, and like a difference of 3% of CBD, if it was like 1% total CBD versus like 1.11 is different than like three versus 6%. Because whenever yeah. I hear a 3% difference, I always in my mind think nominal three, like three actual percentage yes. points, but 3% yeah. of the actual amount that was present is different than a 3% change. So and that's why it's going to be a margin of error, just in terms of sampling about a normal distribution, right? So plus or minus one standard deviation of sort of what you're expecting. And whenever you fall within that, based on sort of the, the measuring techniques that you have, it, it's not going to be statistically significant. Um, based on sort of what standard deviation you're working in, that may be 3%, that may be 5%, maybe in order to get a statistically significant, that means you have to get sort of outside of the expected range where we might fall, you know, that might be more than that. This is really a measure of statistics and sort of probability sampling rather than like whether improving by 3% would be significant to a grower. Um, they're just saying, we don't know that that 3% difference is actually because of the treatment that we did. It's within the, the range of statistical probability. Like when you do political polls and they say, you know, plus or minus 3% or plus or minus 5% or whatever they say for the margin of error of that poll, they're saying that that's just, you know, even if we have a perfect sample um, and sampled it perfectly, we still expect our range to be anywhere from, you know, right on to plus or minus 5% of the true number. So there's always sort of a, a, a range like that when you're doing experiments like that. And in order to be statistically significant, you have to be outside that range. That's a great point. And it's like the p-value being like 0.05 or 0.0001 or whatever. That's what they're talking about with significance. They're not talking about like as a grower, the Guelph study that we talked about with the drought stressing, there was a one yielded 1,050 grams and the other one yielded 1,000 grams. They said that's not a significant difference, but every grower you talk to would say, I would love two more ounces, right? Right. But so, really, exactly. Me too. Yeah. Significant. What you're meaning is if we, if we did this a thousand times, we're not sure that that one's always going to be 50 grams more it's within sort of what we'd expect so that might just be a kind of a fatter one we got a skinnier one on the other side we do this again they might be reversed right it, but if they were way off of each other we'd be like okay wow that they're so different that this is statistically significant um and the larger sample size that you do, the smaller that standard deviation gets. That's why, you know, a political poll that asks 5,000 people has a really small standard deviation, a really small margin of error. And, a, you know, something that only runs with a couple of smaller sample size will have a much larger. Yeah, who, who determines the margin of error? There, Doc? It's determined the, uh... statistically based on your sampling strategy. Yeah, so let's just based on how many people you you've asked essentially and um how large that sample is or how many plants you grew or or whatever else it's it's entirely related to the number that you have 
So again, in a political survey, if they ask 100 people, it's going to have a really big margin of error. If they ask 5,000, it'll have a smaller margin of error. So for here, um, in the materials and methods, uh, we can, I mean, I don't want to like go word for word necessarily. I highlighted a few parts that might be interesting. Um, you know, I would have thought that a, a cultivar with the name Trump might be a little bit more resistant to light damage, like UV radiation. Um, but, you know, we're not. I mean, we'll, yeah, but yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so it says here under um, uh, Section 2.1, Plant Material and Environmental Conditions. 16 rude cuttings of the chemotype 3 cultivar Trump T1 were selected for uniformity and transplanted into 6.3 liter plastic pots as described by Western Merlind and others in 2021. Plants were pinched to four nodes and grown for 10 days in a greenhouse under a vegetative photo period. Um, oh, 18 and it's really four. Yes, yeah, sorry, Matthew. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, you uh, continue. Yeah. So they oh, didn't hear what you said. And they divided them into four groups. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So four plants um, in each treatment. Yeah. Again, like you're saying, not the biggest sample size, but a lot of the times when you see this type of study in cannabis, they're not like dedicating entire grow rooms to each condition as much as we would like to see that because the higher the sample size, the more significance of the data. But um, hopefully it gives them an idea in a certain direction. But I do agree. A smaller sample leads to a less significant result. Well, that's also why they research able to say whether it was that it was significant, basically, when they saw a small, a, a small difference between the two treatments, they weren't able to say it was statistically significant because the sample size was pretty small. Yeah, that affects the power or whatever of the significance. Yeah. Plants were irrigated daily with a complete nutrient solution. And again, this is based on a different research report. And uh, then I jumped over here in the violet uh, colored sections in 2.2, we talk about UV treatments. They say UV was supplied with two T5 fluorescent tubes per chamber that supplied an instantaneous UVB PFD of 5.5 plus or minus 0.3 uh, micromoles per meter squared per second. And a UVA, uh, 315 to 399 nanometers. And for a total UV photon flux, 280 to 399 nanometers of 10.2 plus minus 0.6 micromoles uh, per meter per second at canopy height. Do we have any uh, input there? I, I actually don't know what to make of that, to be honest. Um, I do have a little input, actually, just to go back to the strain. Uh, although the name was funny and the joke was as well. Um, T1 is labeled T1 is an abbreviation of T1000. I'm almost positive. The Trump 1000, which is purple Urkel crossed to triangle Kush, which are two kind of older school strains. And I would wonder if maybe... Uh, like a more modern one would re react differently under UV. And I'm also curious if they're calling this a CBD cultivar because those are both high THC. Unless <laughs> unless the uh, purple Urkel is a lot higher CBD than we've ever really thought. But most of the time I see purple Urkel, it's like at least 15% THC and a decent amount of terpenes and esters and other things in there. So That's I'm curious. Funny. I actually just started that string. Um, I'm getting ready to clone it and flip it. Uh, uh, a good buddy of mine who's a really good grower told me that that strain is very, very tasty. It's lower THC, but he said it's very, very good. So I'm giving it a whirl. The Trump 1000? Uh, it, it wasn't named Trump 1000 when I got it. It was T1000, but sure. I mean, it could be that. You know what I mean? Like, I guess. But it is purple I, Oracle. It is, it is that cross. So it, 
it's it's called t1000 i think because the name is one that turns a lot of people off so just to it's like it was in response i think to like obama kush at the time oh really because i was thinking t1000 like the terminator model like that's where my mind goes me yeah, too. If you go on Seed Finder, it says T1000, aka Trump 1000, is a mostly I variety you. from CSI. I believe Humboldt. you, though. That's probably the reason, you know. Probably... It's, it's a play the on part both. That you just read, Matthew. I, I mean, I don't think that that's a lot of UV light. I'll just chime in and say that they're talking about a, a UV PFD, which is the equivalent of sort of PPFD of 10. That seems really small. What would be normal just for people who uh, maybe don't know? Um, well, when we're thinking about the PPFD of Parlight, like for, you know, a common measure is up to a thousand. Um, so if you're going and, and I, I tried to read this a couple of times to make sure I wasn't missing it. But no, they're definitely looking at they're talking about 10 or so micromoles per meter squared um per second so if you look right at the bottom for a total uv or the, the highlighted section that you read which is the top highlighted section for a total uv photon flux um 280 to 399 nanometers of 10.2 plus or minus 0 0.6 micromoles per meter squared per second uh at canopy height um i don't know i don't measure the the photon density of uv light often um, or really ever, but I measure the, the density of par light and the density of far red light. Um, you know, often growers with, with a lot of the grow lights that we're using have, you know, 30 or 40 micromoles per square meter of far red light. So just coming out of normal LED grow lights. Um, so that would be three or four times as much far red light as they're talking about in terms of, of UV light. Now, UV photons have more energy in them. Um, so if you're thinking about sort of total amount of energy, there'd be probably just as much energy in 10 micromoles of, of UV photons as there would be, let's think, no, not, not just as much, but, you know, more than there would be in, in terms of 10 micromoles of far red. But it just doesn't seem like a lot. Like I was expecting maybe a, a UV photon flux um, at about a hundred or so. Um, so, ten. Do you think that's in response to the negative results from all the other UV studies as of late? Because when they go higher, it just ends up being, and even in this, the highest, crispy. the highest um, condition had the worst results. And so, right. Yeah, exactly. So maybe, you know, how much is enough? Maybe not very much um, or none at all, really. But uh, yeah, it, that doesn't seem like a ton for sure. I, I have a theory, question, hypothesis. Not, is the issue that they I don't have a sensor to measure UV light. So I'd wonder how you would adequately dose this um, if you had like a, a UV fluorescent tube, although I don't think they put out a tremendous amount of light as we're seeing sort of evidence of we could kind of back this up and and think a little bit it'd be interesting if they ever describe like how many of these uv tubes they they use or how much power and how big this grow space is we could kind of back that up to figure out you know how much flux they're getting out of each one of these or for each watt of uv light um anyways 
I have a hypothesis that maybe the more naturalist growers out there or sun growers, greenhouse, outdoor, et cetera, might say, you know, well, we harden off our plants and then we put them outside under the sun. And for the most of the year, we have UV in veg and in flower. So maybe they're doing a disservice to these plants by only giving UV in, you know, three weeks into flower, whether the resin or whatever it is, the plant maybe doesn't develop the resistance that it would need where they are obviously doing it outside somehow. And uh, obviously uh, yes. different levels I mean, and I amounts. For somebody told me once, I can't remember who it was, but like say in regards to, to things that happen during veg, they say they don't check your high school transcripts when you apply to grad school. Um, like, you know, things that happened that long ago, does that really contribute much? I mean, assuming the plant makes it in a healthy condition to the flowering stage, is that going to, what do you guys think about that? Is there well, let's, any, let's just talk about pesticides because that, that systemic ones last, right? Yeah, that's From different. That stage. Is it though? Like, like, it's a I plant. Think, if you do something to it early in life and it can stay with it for life, like a pesticide, in a, how could that be different? In a cumulative than... way, I would agree with you that, like, in a cumulative sort of way, all of it matters, right? In right. italics. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, specifically, doing some special lighting earlier is going to affect the quality of the flowers that grow in the plant much later. Um, the pathways that I started to think about where that could happen would be through like excessive radiation and mutations and stuff like that. But I think there can be a, just a general argument in that if you have a gen, if you eliminate the barriers for growth in vegetative phase where it has the most, the best veg possible, whatever that is, whatever that takes, if it takes a special spectrum or whatever, you're going to build a bigger, stronger plant that can uptake more nutrient and do its thing in flower and, and become better in, in those ways. I mean, just just generally speaking, I think so. And, and maybe it's something the plant has to get used to for a while before it, it you know, can adequately oh, for sure. adapt to that or something. And maybe just having that time in veg gets it more cut. So yeah, I, I, I guess I can imagine how this could, could happen. I guess I also think that they want to hold them to their beliefs, right? That like, need us to run every experiment to show that it's not working sure i mean bring uh, it up because hardening off is a thing a lot of growers that try to put their plants outside if they don't do it an hour or two at a time yeah. the plants will wilt or they'll have struggles even if they're perfectly watered ph is dialed in temperature and everything else is there the natural light is just too much for like an early clone or early seedling or a plant that was grown under a not so intense grow light to be put out into the summer sun uh, day one, it's just not going to be able to take it the whole day. And so that was the first thing that came to my mind um, to, to contradict my earlier statement was like, yeah, it would be hardening off or something like that, where like, or like what I like to talk about the bio priming aspect of things, right, where um, you can have this sort of, yeah, you can have this sort of hardening off or this uh, dose dependent response. And if you know what that response is going to be like predictively, consistently, for the most part, and you can you can like play around with that. So I think that's valuable in that way. I do want to note that, like Dr. Coco said about testing, you are um, uh, muted, I think. But uh, for UV measurements, the spectroradiometer was calibrated with a deuterium arc lamp that provides calibration factors between 200 and 400 nanometers. So you have to have specialized equipment, uh, you know, to be doing this stuff. And the number of people I think who are speculating, I mean, of course, a lot of people don't have the the resources and such thing. Of course, there's nothing wrong with speculating based on other observations, but yeah, it, it takes a lot to actually uh, do that. 
right? So it bears repeating, I guess. The next sentence there too confirms what we had sort of picked up in that graphic that there were three different lighting periods of one hour, two hour and a five hour applied right in the middle of the photo periods. So and I guess we're going to have to try applying it at the beginning of the photo period and at the end of the photo period as well. Um, but yeah, it does answer. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy that these findings show us that, you know, the plant did the best growth wise under those lower amounts of UV. And then you try to square that in your memory of a plant sitting on a nature that gets UV the entire damn time. It's like, I like to push against a little bit that I hear a lot in the organic community about, they always give the example or their check is if it happens in nature, that's, that's good. That's the best thing, but that's not always the best thing. You know, that's why we kind of bring these plants inside and, 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 and they perform in a lot of ways, way the hell better. Yeah. Um, they survive. Under ideal. Yeah. Yeah. So not everything that happens in nature is, is ideal for the plant at all. Like, you know, getting nibbled on by an herbivore or having, you know, cloudy days or other things like that. These are sort of challenges that the plants have to overcome. Um, the noonday sun in a lot of places is a challenge that the plants have to overcome too, because it's just too much light for plants and they need to kind of dodge some of that light during you know like noon to 2 p.m the way we count time in, in a lot of places relatable yeah so like i've had so many growers ask me that like if we if the sun is 2000 ppfd at noon why can't i set my light at 2000 ppfd so <laughs> things like that that you know plants are surviving outdoors we're trying to set up the conditions to allow them really to thrive they give them everything they need at sort of exactly the right dosages so that they they don't have to you know survive certain situations i think that it might create a different sort of quality of resin being under that intensity of the 2000 ppfd even if it's only for a short time and under the sun and although it might not be ideal um it can create certain qualities that are beneficial and like i mentioned bohemian chemist last week did a test on their flower day one uh, when they were finished drying and curing versus one year later and same with their pre-rolls and there was less than one percent change on cannabinoids and terpenes over a 365 day period and that's full sun grown cannabis where a lot of i think maybe indoor greenhouse might stored? not I, i'm more curious about during the, that year what was the storage situation they stored it properly i mean in a climate controlled situation and i think that a lot of the indoor stuff does store as well but i think as uh, another factor is hash making and things like that people have said mm -hmm. a lot of the sun-grown stuff is maybe more uh just like a thicker resin or a more durable resin and it there i think that there's just slightly different qualities i don't think that it makes one uh better or worse i think that they're just slightly yeah, different they're definitely different it's a different growing environment and the plants are going to turn out a little bit different too um and in certain ways i think there may be advantages and in other ways there's certainly some disadvantages and I think we should, as horticulturalists, you know, take advantage of the best of the best of both. So if you have indoor at your disposal, you know, try and do it the best that you can. If you have outdoor at your disposal, do it the best you can. And if you have mixed light greenhouse or whatever, take advantage of all the things. And in the past, when we looked at those studies from the 80s that did support some amounts of UV, what we always end up going back to was they didn't have the ability to control for just a single UV like we do mm -hmm. today. It was one bulb type versus a different bulb type. 
So there was usually, oh, this actual spectrum of that bulb was better than that actual spectrum of that bulb where the efficiency was different and the intensities were different. So there were other factors that played in. It wasn't just UV, um, just like indoor versus outdoor isn't just the UV difference. Because I mean, they could have targeted specific spectral ranges with LEDs, but instead they went with fluorescence that sort of cast a you know a broader range of uv so they, they talk about it throughout here they're talking about you know well, um 280 to 399 or whatever um and then they're having to compensate for that and do these other measurements and calibrations based on not knowing exactly how much of the different wavelengths of light that they're doing that's the thing that you know sort of thinking about this back i'm curious why they set it up that way why they're using that UV light source as opposed to a much more controllable UV light source like LED. I think maybe just efficiency of output, cheapness of the cost. Those like mm-hmm. reptile type yeah. bulbs are really cheap and they put out a lot per watt of electricity versus like the LEDs as Certainly we know. are more efficient. I agree. Yeah. The UV LEDs um, are, are terrible. Maybe replicate sort of what consumers or what growers are going to do in the field, but that's also true. I see so many people telling me, oh, they're not getting the results that I'm getting because I'm using this bulb or whatever. You need to use the yeah. whatever grow, uh, you know, uh, UV bulb, this perfect spectrum. And a lot of people do use those and swear by them. And so I think that they're trying to maybe potentially replicate what is the word in the field. So in the, I this, like this, this article. This is a good recent article that I'll refer to. And, you know, when people ask about the efficacy or they talk about their why their buds are better because they have their UV, just toss in this link. Don't say anything. Be like, oh, I just read an article about that. And here, you should read it. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm glad that you appreciate it. Um, it I, uh, oh, no, keep going. You're on a roll. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so I have this turquoise section up and, um, you know, when we, when we go over these research reports, um, I do think there's some nominative benefit to having a, uh, a unique name. So like a name like Hayescomp or something like that. I'm almost positive. I know that I've read something or some things from uh, a Hayescomp and I think it is uh, the one, I think Tao might've been the one because um, we've talked about UV a few times, and I think uh, Tao brought up a paper by, by his company. I thought it was older than two, 2005 um, regarding UV and whether or not um, you know, it's better or worse for cannabinoid synthesis. They say here, uh, many, many plants for the, for the audience, many plants produce photoprotective pigments that absorb UVB photons to protect critical biochemical processes. It has been proposed that cannabinoids act as photoprotectants against UVB. Cannabinoids absorb strongly between about 200 and 350 nanometers, but this does not necessarily mean UV exposure increases synthesis. And I think that's very important. Same also for um, uh, for anthocyanins and things like that. Like, and I know uh, we, you know, our panel member, our beloved panel member Brandon, um, has opinions about this too. But I will say that, like, as a stress response, things can trigger things that are, un, that are kind of not directly related for various reasons. Um, so like sometimes, so like, you know, if it's traditionally the case that a plant, you know, purples up because of a response to UV, maybe it will purple up in a response to like another kind of stressor because some things are turned on that you wouldn't necessarily associate if you only be experiencing one kind of um, dimension, if that makes sense. Like cold or blue could also work instead of UV to 
exactly. amplifying production. Yeah, because the also because it can be useful for multiple things too. Pigments, um, a lot of pigments have a lot of neat secondary and tertiary effects as well, um, including like against pests and pathogens. Um, so yeah, just things to consider in the milieu. Uh, they go on to say that in in a highly cited paper by Leiden in 1987, maybe that was the paper reported that THC in flowers of a drug type variety increased from 2.5 to 3.1% as biologically effective UVB increased from zero to 13.4 kilojoules per meter squared per day. Notably, there was no effect in a fiber type variety, which led the authors to conclude that the effect of UVB on cannabinoid synthesis is equivocal, which means uncertain. <laughs> I like how they put that there. Uh, recent studies have reported that increasing UVB and UVA had no effect on cannabinoid concentration. All studies to date use relatively lower UV photon fluxes, but there is a potential that a higher UV flux would increase cannabinoids. Okay. I'm surprised by that last statement because everything that we've seen that they keep showing is that the higher concentrations tend to be negative toward that. And they say, but at higher concentrations, there's a potential that it would be better to like how do they where do they conclude that from <laughs> that's the premise of this study so that they I were guess. they said like other people had done these like lower concentration studies so there's this chance that higher concentrations and then they go through and and set up their experiment to do that and their results show that yeah the same thing it's also spartan just that you have to actually test things because there would be some people yeah that, yeah that just because that. you didn't test it yeah, it's just cannabis is relatively new. You know, when you're reading through this and you're wanting to get the data, and you're like, you see data in in studies before that say at this low level, and then the slightly higher level, and the slightly higher level, it got increasingly worse at the slightly higher level, and then you have another group of scientists come and say, but you didn't test it at this slightly higher level. Like, what, the, what the hell, man? What makes you think? I hear you. I mean, scientists are fans of the extremes. They want to see, you know, higher or lower and how it would respond. You've never gone high enough or low enough to make all of the scientists There may be happy. a threshold. Exactly. It may That's not. True. That's true. Benefit may not kick in until you get up. It might go down, down, down until you reach a certain dose and then magic happens and it takes off. It's like the EC pushers with like uh, all these nutrient companies, <clears throat> Jungle Boys and Athena, <clears throat> but they push like four EC oh, on people. Now. I'm sorry, but he's he's doing that. I, that's uh, anyways, I'll, I'll be quiet. They're crazy, but, yeah. but I mean, somehow their plants survive. I, I've seen people walk through and they like, show the actual readouts on these things and they're like pushing for EC or whatever. And the plants are still living. Um, <laughs> I have but... a friend, I have a friend who believes, and they're a researcher actually, um, currently an independent researcher, but uh, they, uh, they used to be associated with the university. And I guess they're pretty sure that they have a plant that's a cannabis plant. That's very, uh, uh, saline tolerant. Um, okay. Not surprised. I would not be surprised if selection pressures from indoor yeah, grows. Yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely <laughs> adding selection pressures for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> board, saline tolerance. I just, for sure. I just think that the uh, avenue for UV, if there's a benefit, I think they need to look at shorter doses or smaller, maybe the same uh, intensity, but at shorter intervals or something. I think the sweet spot's lower lower or maybe the same interval but just for like two days like day 24 and day 26 yeah exactly just less total exposure i agree I mean, but at this point 
we're like a theory in search of a phenomenon, right? Where there's all sorts of things that, that might work, but we don't really have any evidence that it does. So it's not like there's a whole bunch of people out there that are like tapped into some magical principle and we're trying to replicate that. There's just a bunch of growers that because of some studies in the 80s have these deep-seated beliefs about something being beneficial, despite every study that we do now sort of showing that that's not the case. Um, so yeah, we could sit around and think about all sorts of other ways we could test UV, but I'm kind of to the point where I, I need to see some kind of evidence that it's, it's worth playing around with anymore at this point. Otherwise, I, I think there's sort of more productive trees to bark up. What do we think about this section here? They say um, that uh, the varieties of 40 years ago contained around 3% cannabinoids, less than 20% of modern medical cannabis cultivars. While we cannot dismiss potential interactions among cultivars, the results of Leiden and others, that 1987 article, are not reproducible, likely due to cultivars with relatively low cannabinoid concentrations. That's an excellent point. Very possible. Yeah. I mean, you're going to see a bigger change when you're going, like we were talking about earlier, if it's 1% to 4% or 3% to 5%, it's going to seem like a bigger right. difference being made than when you've got 20% THC and it's like 20 versus 21 isn't going to really show that big of a change where, you know, three versus four is a bigger difference. They couldn't, they couldn't make that happen either, though. Yeah, it's funny that we seem to like have some people myself included I, I like to go back to these old studies and be like but this diet the study said <laughs> uh, why not you know try it um have fun mess around it's your own grow you can do it but Matthew, and, can you go back up to that section you're just at it said that they try to experiment with uvc there was there where did they do there it's interesting they said that they were they're seeing if the uvc would degrade the it's possible that uv treated yeah, plants cannabinoids that were degraded so they could have even they could have even synthesized more cannabinoids but the uvc degraded them anyway kind of a thing like it canceled well they that. early they say here that um at least for the uvb uh, they don't think it was significant they put uh, they the UVB applied uvc to a to dry flower that had been ground and spread in a thin layer yeah they're trying to see if they by 15 percent. oh my goodness yeah they proved that and i think that's what uh xyz vector said doesn't uh some uv decay cannabinoids and in this case they showed that in a clear demonstration that uvc can uvc also breaks down skin cells and causes you know carcinomas cancer and, and stuff yeah so yeah, I, yeah. i'm not surprised that but what i'm but what that's funny to me for is is i think that some of these remediation techniques one of them is uvc so that's silly to use oh yeah it's, it's just you shouldn't shine it on your flowers hey hey spartan if if, it, if you can take it from yeah. 20% down to 18 or, or 15, they don't care as long as it's smokable and not moldy anymore and they can sell it. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's well, better than I the zero dollars they were going to get for it. That's how these business people think. And that's what we have to expose the people out there. You should grow your own because they're going to do shit like that. They're going to remediate it. They're going to drop the cannabinoids and not care and they'll still sell it to you. It's uh, they're going to be like mycotoxins. What are those? Well, that's, I'm not worried about that. Ask uh, I'm not tested for it. So it doesn't matter to me. My morals are only based on but the legislators, yes, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm Eugene Krabs, and that's my opinion on the Krusty Krab. You know, you no, guys, uh, that's, the thing that's really still got me thinking. I'm still thinking about how 
when cannabinoids are at three percent, you know, doing things to the plant might make it go to five percent. Um, when cannabinoids are at thirty percent, doing things to the plant is probably only going to f it up. Um, you know, and make it go down to 25% or whatever. And if you think about this, I, we know cannabis plants are capable of producing 30% cannabinoids, right? So when they were only producing 3%, there's a lot of switches you could potentially still flip and have that, you know, go up. Great point. There's a 10x Great. potential that we already know have demonstrated yeah, to ourselves yeah. through breeding yeah. and just good growing practices over the years. Yeah. But now all those switches have been flipped by, you know, genetics, usually by breeding. Um, and so the plants are sort of tuned up to be producing a lot. And you do other things like that. It, it totally makes sense. A lot without UV. that might have worked in the 80s to goose the numbers from three to five wouldn't do the same thing now that we're at three. Right. I and they've even like, lost uh, that trigger that could have been flipped by UV back when it was a 3% plant. Cause like it, yeah. it had it in its tool belt back then, but we've bred it so far away from that. It's like all of its tool belt is make THC. So if you hit it with UV, it's like, Hey, this isn't, they're used to making THC or, or, under natural light without UV. That way, right. That was responsible for that going from three to five that was triggered by the UV that that pathway might be already on by you know genetic code and it's already doing that now and hitting it with uv at this point um, could screw that up or could screw something else up um so that's a really interesting point that i hadn't considered before in the, in they also talked about um they also talked about uh, cannabinoid absorption of uv and also degradation but like in some research that i've read i don't remember no i can't like cite it off the top of my head but like Sometimes they turn into other cannabinoids. So like the total, like they're still cannabinoids. They're just not the ones, not the same ones. I think that's a, kind of a weasel, not the same, this was intentional or anything, but it kind of feels a bit like a weasel word to say that like they degraded, but if they degrade to other cannabinoids, then I think like that's CBN. Degrading exactly. to CBN is what people often say, but CBN is desirable to a lot of people that have insomnia and a lot of people like, like using cannabis for sleep. So CBN is beneficial. degrade into THC or is that develop? Right. Whether you call it degradation or development sometimes also depends. Well, on just in the, the, I guess that's just a physical chemistry thing. It degrades because it's just, it's a, uh, it's not like know, a like terpene off gassing. Literally it's you losing something. Yeah. Like a terpene off gases, it's gone for good. It didn't change like a THCA turning into THC or THC turning into CBN is like, you haven't lost as much, maybe even if you did lose a little bit, but even I think making anthocyanin, uh, if they got hit by UV, uh, all the phenos of the same strain, I'll try, I'll pop a whole pack of seeds. And I'll have some green phenos and some purple phenos. And almost always, nine out of 10 times, the green phenos are a little bit more potent. And I would say maybe the dedication of the plant to making anthocyanin production is potentially a trade-off between cannabinoid production or terpene production. You only have so much energy going into the plant. You only have so many nutrients available and so much CO2 and things in the you know, atmosphere available for the plant to produce. So there's got to be some trade-off. Are you covering this in 50 strains of purple, Jack? I, I've talked about it on some podcasts, but I think it's more specifically just talking about uh, the 50 most beautiful purple strains that I found. But you know what I'm saying? It's a significant thing, maybe in the in the introduction, you could have a little editorial or something. No, but um, yeah, I think there's I think there's a, a the theory makes sense. I think there's some interesting information here that Matthew's highlighted about. They took the measurements from the sun itself and measured the UV. 
that's oh, interesting. I hadn't really seen those measurements before. Yeah, um, I can I can narrate for the audience here. Uh, section four point three relating UV treatments to sunlight in the field. A common criticism of research on UV in controlled environments is that the conditions do not adequately reflect the field, uh, as this Caldwell papers mentions. The maximum PPFD from sunlight on a clear day in the middle of summer is about 2,000 micromoles per meter per second. The UVB PFD is about seven micromoles per meter per second, and the UVA PFD is about 160 micromoles per meter per second. In this study, UVB PFD was about six micromoles, but the UVA PFD was only okay. about four micromoles. This is what I'm studies. Yes, there's only 10 total micromoles of UV light, and yeah, it's not really <laughs> I know, right? What was the sun uh, spaced out? I didn't hear the number for the sun. 10 is what they gave. What was the sun? A total of 167. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, so, we're yeah. talking way, 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 way lower percentages. But the same of UVB, basically. So UVB was, from the sun is seven, and from their lights was six. But... UVA, UVA which is sort of the more common UV and which is also photosynthetically active, unlike UVB. UVA from the sun was 160, and UVB from or UVA from there was only four. And now I don't think they hit 2000 overall flux or background flux either. So they're probably operating, I don't, didn't read that, but I'd imagine up to a thousand. So probably cut those all in half. Um, so they probably had more UVB than the sun as a ratio of overall light. Um, Much more. But way less of UVA. Yeah. And that's where the people can say, give more UV Spartan, because they're like, well, we didn't hit that sun ratio. We want to give way more UVA. And UVA then, rather than B. Right. And then a yeah. small amount of UVB. It's garbage. Yeah. Throw it out, Tal. It's garbage. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's supposed to be 160 and it's four, nah, I can't say totally throw it out, but yeah, that, that's suspect, right? Don't you go? Doesn't everybody think that? It's definitely not mimicking the sun, although based on the results, I'm kind of leaning towards Spartan. Like, okay, you want to keep giving more UV? And see <laughs> you would fuck like, them up real good. <laughs> right. Like, what are we going for here? Like, plant Some scientists should do it. Just cook the plants and be like, this is what happened when we gave 160 yeah. <laughs> of UVA and, you know, 10 of UVB or whatever it's supposed to be. Then it's going to matter where those 160 are. Are we talking about 160... Uh, you know, micromoles of 398 nanometer, you know, photons, because plants would just treat that like it's photosynthetic light, they'd be pretty much fine. Or is it going to be down to like 360 instead of 398? And what is it like, closest to in the sun? You know, how much of the spectrum when we take be a... distributed, but basically the sun, the, the shorter wavelength photons get filtered out by our atmosphere. So... It's not even what's in the sunlight. It's in what's in the sunlight that makes it down to the surface of the planet. And, you know, there's a lot of, of UV light if you go into interstellar space. Um, but the shortest wavelengths are filtered out in our atmosphere. We're sort of like protected from them by the atmosphere. Um, so very little UVC from the sun reaches the surface of the planet. A little bit of UVB from the sun reaches the planet. 
quite a bit of UVA from the sun reaches the planet, basically, because as you get longer wavelength, it's not getting filtered out as well by the atmosphere. And elevation also, as you go up in altitude, so if you yeah. put less atmosphere between you and the sun, you'll get a lot more UV. Um, of all types. Heard altitude growers talk about this since like time immemorial, that they think that that's the, like, sort of the secret to, to growing. Yeah, you know, I've heard the same thing. Yeah. So I got to get some psychedelic mushroom compost to feed my plants because that's how I get to space. So I just got to get them in space and I'll get some more of that UV and we'll see what happens. Oh, I think Musk's going to start a satellite for that. You know, you can rent <laughs> space to, to grow your plants. There's some Afghan tribes that have high altitude, like mountain grows that some of them, they like go all the way to the snows for like their late season hash. And yeah. it's interesting. They definitely have higher UV than like the desert regions down way lower. And yeah. uh, the plants look different. They, everybody like, that's one of the things that always kind of blows my mind is we still to this day always say like Afghan or Afghani and think it's like a short squat plant. That's like a heavy indica with broad leaf when there's like, I can go on Instagram and go to Afghan underscore selection and show you eight different Afghan, you know, yeah. unique cultivars. This one's red. This one's purple. This one's black. One smells like a tire. One smells like cherries. One smells like gasoline. Like they're all so different from one another. And, That's an important yeah. point. Those ones that they're growing at altitude are, are different cultivars. They're different land race cultivars that have been, you know, selected by those local people based on what grows well in their environment and their soil and all of that. You know, what I just thought about, um, how you, one must harden off a plant when, you know, you go from inside to outside. Like, yeah, perhaps if they had started these plants with uh, UV light, they wouldn't be so, uh, or look so damaged. They might even not even be damaged, but not, might not look so damaged. That's kind of why I said that. Alteration. Yeah. Yeah. Is if you start a seed from under a, a, a light source that has some sort of sun replicatable amounts of UVA and UVB through the whole entire growth cycle, that would satisfy at least the naturalists out there who are going to be like, you need to do it like nature. You need to do it like the sun. Even if it doesn't work, even if it's the worst result, you can at least say, hey, we tried it. We did it this way and uh, it didn't work out. Or we tried it this way and it worked because we didn't have to harden it off. Like uh, the same exact people uh, in the mountains of Afghanistan, they just throw a bunch of seeds. They call basically all but like one male each year. They find the best male and they leave that one because it'll throw enough pollen to pollinate enough of them to make seed for the next season. And that's typically how a lot of the tribes go about doing that in those areas. So um, those plants are never hardened off. It's the ones that sprout. They go through with bags full of seeds and literally just throw them around with a little sprinkles. Some of them fertilize, some of them use natural like goat shit and whatever else, but um, it's it's a lot less complicated. They don't make the process super complicated. They're real just natural farmers and have been doing it that way for a hundred plus years. That's, that's just awesome. But, yeah, and they also grow really good stuff at lower altitudes there too. Yeah. So. I, I, yeah, I wanted to just kind of throw some cold water on the idea that you have to go up to, you know, over 10,000 feet or something in order to, to grow good outdoor weed. I... It is interesting that like Hindu Kush is one of the strains that kind of became popular and took hold and I still think is in a lot of the modern day genetics. And uh, it came from a high altitude, you know, uh, situation and has kind of been the backbone of uh, a lot of modern cultivars. So I would wonder if maybe the environment brought out an expression in those plants for those certain groups that were able to pick stuff that was really like super ultra potent or just maybe they got dumb luck and it was special and for whatever other reason. Um, 
maybe there's a thousand factors there's that went into it. In the terroir. I want to translate it though. It, it works in Florida. Yeah. OG Kush is a back. It's like an emerald triangle cross to Hindu Kush. One of them Hermied under the other one, but that has gone on to make a ton of modern stuff. So I want to point out on this acknowledgements, Jack, that it is a CBD cultivar because it was hemp that they they had a license here under acknowledgements. So they're thanking the uh, Agriculture and Food of the United States Department of Agriculture for providing a certificate to research industrial hemp. So it has to be a hemp cultivar that they were researching. It has to be considered hemp for sure. Yeah. I'm actually not sure like what that entails here specifically though. I've certainly seen a lot of people get uh, very loose with the hemp stuff and maybe just harvest early <laughs> and then they take the stuff that they want later and they send I think that's very off. important. There's a reason why I kept this uh, up here. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, Spartan, because that is a good point to make. Also here in the conflict of interest, uh, you know, they mentioned some of the places where they get the funding, which is always a great thing. Um, yeah. Before Doc uh, goes, he works somewhere, right? App, uh, I don't actually know this. Is that Apogee? Yeah, yeah, I believe Bruce Rugby is affiliated with Apogee, or if not owning Apogee Instruments, right? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I think they use a, a couple of Apogee uh, sensors in this research report. I'll say personally, no, I don't no, think that makes him that. A partial with the science. The the sensors are high quality. They do a great yeah, job. Whether it's him using them yeah, or somebody else using them, kind of. it is probably the standard and one of the, the highest quality sensors that you can get in the industry, in my opinion. I agree with that. I, I will say that his relationship with Athena has raised my eyebrows a bit, but his relationship with Apogee passes the, the, the smell test. Did we ever get a overall, the actual, like a bar graph of like, what was the THC cannabinoids, terpenes? Like what were the percentages of the, the plants? 15%. It's might start to have that effect. Okay. Yeah, THC looks like 0. 0.4, 1.5. Yeah, did it affect terpenes at all or noticeably? I don't or... think they tested terpenes. I think they would have mentioned it sooner. I wonder if there is some uh, effect on that too, you know? I'm sure they studies got, have they, looked some at of them it. get burned off for sure. Other studies have looked at it and it usually indicates poor results like Spartan had mentioned, like the higher you go, the worse. Like ever, all these studies that we've looked at, we've looked at several of these in the past. This is like not the first show we've talked about uh, UV and like a study on, but I'm glad that we're going over it because it is modern. And uh, this one happens to be covering CBD, which most of us actually are not growing. But um, you could see even the THC yield looks like in the higher conditions over here, 1.5 drops down to like 1.2-ish. And this one went from 0.4 to uh, 0.5. So you're not seeing really major gains even on the low ends so I think, yeah i think we can say just from taking all the studies that we've reviewed and smashing them together we can definitively say as for longer periods of exposure at least and we're talking hour plus not then make that determination if you think that's long or not um it seems to be detrimental the more you go the higher you yeah. go towards what we're looking what we're growing the plant for cannabinoids yeah. terpenes and just one thought about that, because people ask me a lot of questions about grow lights and about like which two grow lights are better. And some grow lights have UV diodes. You don't need them. You don't want them coming on full time with your grow light and just be, I mean, they're inefficient. Like so many times you're like, I'm considering these two and like this one, I'm going to go with this one because it's got the UV like, no, even like to Spartan's point, if we figured out how to use it and there was some beneficial way, it would be 
you know, really short time period. It wouldn't just be on with the, the rest of the lights. So let's stop asking grow light manufacturers to include UV in their grow lights. And they will comply. That's why they're doing it. They're like, but growers ask for it. We know it's not, it's not efficient. We're buying them. That's why useful, they keep doing the it. Growers want it. And I'm like, ah. So yeah, they're answering asking. the demand. And yeah. so if we stop buying them, they'll stop making them. They'll make better better lights that don't burn out as quick and that are more efficient in the spectrums that we know are efficient and effective. But Doc, you said you have one hour this evening with us and I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to let you give your final thoughts and shout outs before you get going. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I'm, I missed being on the show, guys. So now I'm like, oh, should I have to go? But like, I, I've missed hanging out with you guys. It's always fun. I was gone for the last two weeks. I said that during the intro. I did get to meet Smart Poker and Crispy Wannabe, um, who are with us here in the chat. I got to meet Berkshire Bud, too. We had a cool time uh, hanging out in the woods in, in upstate New York um smoking some absolute fire that, that smart and crispy showed up with including uh my first time i got to smoke amy aces and violet beauregard so tahoe they check out man nice nice awesome. trains yeah tahoe i got that to was... smoke some ophelia this weekend too man good job with that strain man all right man i'm glad you guys are enjoying it yeah awesome yeah the violet beauregard was particularly was like really interesting um but i don't know amy aces i kind of feel like is famous at this point so it was, it was a huge treat to get to smoke them so shout out to smart poker and crispy wannabe um yeah i'm happy to be back i'm happy this little hurricane tropical storm thing turned out to be just a lot of rain and um i do have to run away i'll see if i can come back and catch the end of the show so grow love everyone have a wonderful rest of your sunday for love, Doc. So uh, people gave me and, and Smot a little bit of a hard time because Violet Beauregard is clearly a character from the uh, Willy Wonka, but the actual Beauregard, the second half of that name, uh, there is like a, a general from like the Civil War, I think South, named after that. But it, Beauregard is a, it means beautiful gaze, and it's a masculine name of French origin, meaning beautiful gaze. And I've seen other ones that say... Uh, specifically a male name so that's where when i was calling out how i just missed the violet bullock was the character <laughs> it always it reminds me of humphrey humphrey bullock Beauregard. Yeah. i usually think of like a french like yeah i think of like a baron wasn't it humphrey bogart like don't bogart it or bogart no that humphrey bogart i think you're right or or maybe Henry. like don't bogart it dude or, like don't fucking don't bogart. Your, yeah 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 you're on the right track Beauregard is different though <laughs> But yeah, it's a, a masculine name, beautiful gaze, and, and that's where um, I, I, me and Smart Poker's head were probably at with that one. But Tao, you're in the clear because Violet Bogard, in that case, was clearly a female character, going back to the naming cannabis plants after female names to avoid sticky dicky situations. <laughs> that's hilarious. Did we want to maybe switch topics now? It looks like we've uh, stopped sharing the um, UV article there. And I'm curious, do hey. you guys want to... Oh, go ahead. Hey, real go quick. I, in our group chat, I just shared a couple articles. Um, they're not scientific articles, but I seen it in Google earlier. I meant to bring it up earlier in the week, but I've been so busy in our group chat. But uh, it's a law, supposedly, in Minnesota 
saying that they're allowed to, as home growers, sell weed legally. Like there's some provision in their law. And I just wanted to bring it up. I don't know if there's that any listeners awesome in Minnesota. Yeah, I shared two different articles in our group chat um, from pretty reputable sources. One was CBS News, and I think one was like their local newspaper. So uh, they're having a big little thing down there. Uh, when I Google stuff, like I'm always Googling laws and stuff, like I'm a nerd for that angle of, of cannabis. So it came up, and I meant to bring it up earlier. I actually seen it earlier this week with them, but Matthew brought that one up. I'm like, oh, maybe I better share that. So that's in the group chat. If you guys want to take a look at that later, that's there. It says advocates say state now, constitution allows Minnesota to sell marijuana they grow. And the other one says, does the state constitution allow Minnesotans to sell the homegrown weed? Question mark. And um, just to speculate, I mean, like I talked about, the former governor of Ventura is kind of a big advocate of like, you know, people rights, grower rights and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised, but uh, I'll try and pull this yeah, up. He's, and share this yeah, that's funny because are you talking about Jesse Ventura. Yeah. Yeah, he's actually got a big uh, push to start his own medical brand, and he's trying to get that going in Minnesota. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if he was. I think it's great to anything that gives home grow rights and uh, and it gives the avenue of the home grower to be able to have, like for example, here in the state of Michigan, we don't have the ability as home growers to sell our product, but we have uh, the rights as gardeners. If you were to garden vegetables. They call it like a craft garden license. So I don't think you have to get a license. Craft garden law, I think it is. And you can put a roadside stand up and sell your vegetables out front. So it would be great to be able to work that into the constitution to, to have cannabis treated just like anything else that you can grow. And to be able to do something like that would be amazing. I think that would help so many, so many families. Not only to have more access, you know, to more fresh product, but to have access for the, I mean, have an outlet for those families that could grow to provide for their families. I totally agree. And I think this would actually encourage some people that are, um, you know, longtime cultivators to maybe move to Minnesota as how many people moved to, um, you know, Oregon at the time and then Oklahoma later on yeah, when yeah. the industries opened up and licenses and permits were open. If, if you can just home grow and sell your home grow, a lot of people would be more than happy to uh, provide for that situation. And so this is the article that Noah sent, the second one. The first one was kind of asking if it does allow that. And um, this is saying Minnesotans can now legally sell their own homegrown, but the state's recreational law prohibits them from selling it. Oh, so what's going on? This, the Constitution is saying that they can but the person may sell and peddle products they farm and garden occupied cultivated okay, without a license. Say, what I just what I was just talked about in detail in Michigan. It sounds like they have a similar situation there, and they're they're arguing that the, it should fall under that law. Interesting. I'm gonna have to follow this and see if they are successful. Yeah, because that could then be used as precedent for Michigan to exactly. advocate with that same sort of um, legal avenue. Yeah, well, you have to get arrested first, and then appeal it right to the supreme no court. you can sue you can sue the state you can sue the 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 state on the oh without the it's unconstitutional there you go that's that how works. you do it like with okay. firearms yeah. recently for example like new york had a big case there was bruin versus it was like rifle and pistol association uh, the new york rifle and pistol association versus bruin who i think is like the prosecutor and that case actually allowed all 50 states to allow people to carry if they go through their little licensing scheme and it went from may issue to shall issue 
And that kind of change can become something that goes, you know, from one state to another, just like what Spartan's saying, if this does happen in Minnesota, it could then empower states like Michigan and even California, because for Prop 215, we were allowed to do roadside stand kind of farmer's market situation sales, where now under Prop 64, we can't because our legalization actually is like prohibition 2.0. In a sense, you need a license to um, not only uh, cultivate in certain areas, but also to uh, sell. It's a complicated thing because then, you know, there's the state always wants to regulate whether you believe it or, or don't believe it, but it's under the guise of safety for the consumer. And I think there are good regulations and there are positive reasons for regulations. I'm not anti-regulation. I just would like less of them a lot of times. Um, but what would that look like as far as a home? I mean, are you just trusting they grew it right? Or is there some kind of a standard or a testing procedure when it comes to that or is it just word of mouth hey i i got a bag from so-and-so and it was crap don't order that again i mean some people will go and get their stuff tested on their own and then provide testing and then that will set them apart from others and then some people will not care about testing or demand it and quality will be marked varied kind of thing. yeah so i'm not getting a super clear answer from this article about it it does seem like it's more up in the air and they're kind of discussing the fact that, like Spartan said, it's potentially in the state's constitution. However, um, not for cannabis specifically. They're trying to apply a something that allows you to grow and then sell your own goods to cannabis, which would be a logical step to make because if you legalize a plant to grow, then it should be treated like other plants. However, that, we've seen that's not been the case often with cannabis. That's scary, but if you if you come to, if you talk their language. And you get in front of a lawmaker and you're trying to propose something like this, even at a local level, you, you just have to talk their language to say it's money. It's money in your pockets because if you allow somebody to have a home business, essentially, uh, you get to tax that and you get those tax dollars and you get but that. But a lot of these people won't be paying taxes. That's the problem. A lot of these people exactly. are like anti-tax and they're going to you know, keep it underground and they won't end up receiving those tax dollars unless the people choose to pay taxes historically. They haven't been allowed to. So maybe we could I was get say, the you'd be surprised how many people would go legit if you make it easy to do so. Even like so cool. Extremely dark, hard and, and put obstacles in people's way. That's when they say, fuck it. I'm just going to do what I know. Subcool would pay taxes easy? and call it legendary beads and he would call his sales, whatever. And he'd pay taxes on, you know, businesses that were fronts for selling seeds essentially but he was still paying taxes so if he ever did get busted he couldn't get busted for tax evasion he was running right. a business but not under the guise of something else so so to speak so but it's uh it is interesting with taxes it's still being federally illegal so as much as minnesota might feel uh comfortable to do it even with their state constitution as we've seen uh i think it was the coal memo used to protect states individually and say oh federally we won't come after you but that got rescinded and so we're not technically protected anymore. They haven't since yeah. gone after anybody in each state. They're letting the states do their own thing, like they have with everything from like historically you know, they have. Yeah. From you know, back when we had our own currencies to uh more recently, like each state had different pandemic responses and things like that. So we, yeah, but we there's saw. still that's still a, a big effect in the cannabis industry or other industries when something like that expires and you're trying to run a business and then just do something as simple as work with a bank. Uh, it does still puts pressure there to where banks that would work with cannabis now are scared off of working with people with cannabis, or it takes the, an exorbitant fee for them to call it a, a risk fee or something just to work with you. And that's more off the bottom line. And this, uh, you know, it's what makes cannabis so expensive. 
it makes it more difficult to afford security or proper uh, cultivation, you know, people to come work at your space as opposed to, you know, minimum wage, essentially workers that you're teaching on the fly to do a whatever job. Yeah. That's what a lot of the corporate cannabis is. It comes down to the lowest common denominator. They're going to get the cheapest possible labor, not the person who cares the most or has the most skill, knowledge, and passion for it. That's kind of the yeah, that's the direction you have to go. You have to either go give me a bunch of people that I can get at the lowest wage possible so that I can still survive as a company or get half as many people that are, you know, but they're passionate and they'll hustle and they'll get it done. But I have half as many people. So I like things like harvest and, and trimming and these big jobs are almost impossible without help. So it's, it's a tough business choice. You have to pick, you know, between those two things. I think hiring in temporary labor for harvest time of year, trim time of year, and things like that can that's be effective. The, Lovely ladies who trim, things like yeah. that. They come in and trim your buds up. That takes a huge chunk of the labor out of the process. They'll trim it right. They'll hand trim it. Do it proper. Noah the Grow is about to show off his garden. Noah, turn your camera to the side for us and then uh, unmute yourself because I want you to talk through as uh, I always love seeing the uh, beautiful garden over there. Yeah. Uh, this two right here are uh, Dosey Do Cross. These are the triple burgers. I actually, uh, these ones stretch, man. Boy, they stretch big time. But uh, I um, actually just posted a picture of one of those. Um, you say triple burger? Yeah. This yeah, the right triple here. burger stretch like insane amounts, bro. I can man, much it's time, all that huh? GMO. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, that is, let's see here. That's like day 43 from Flip to 1212. And then. Right here, this one is a Swiss watch. That one right there is duct tape. And then these two back here are uh, Love Piece Covered Apple Flavor. Yeah. I bet yeah, you it's smelling good in there, dude. Oh, man. Oh, my <laughs> dude, I had that AC repair guy come over, man. And I can see he was looking at me sideways. He was parked down by the street, too. And I went down there to, like, just like, hey, what's going on? And, like, I could smell it, like, legit 20 feet from my house because the exhaust air just came on. <laughs> Uh -huh. so yeah that's uh for sure but hey i'll one one quick thing uh, about the testing you were talking earlier is because uh washington state used to have a kind of like a you know a gray area when it came to uh medical cannabis before it became legal like 10 years ago and i knew a guy who was a uh, pretty big uh cannabis uh medical this mobile dispensary like he was one of the number ones around here and every single time he bought a pound, let's say it was 2500 2000 whatever it was, he automatically added $100 in to go get it tested. Like that, that was just right off the top. Every that's time he cool. bought a new pound, that's how he did it. And so he would have the numbers just like boom, boom. And that's one of the reasons why he took over. So, I mean, he was big for a while there. That's cool. If that, and Michigan has the same option where you can get, you can go in and have your stuff tested as just a consumer even. But there's a lot of states that you can't even do that, that that's not even open. If you don't have a, a metric number, then they're not even going to work with you. And they need to figure that out, I think. Yeah, that's really bullshit. Too. In Prop yeah. uh, 215, we did the same thing. And I worked at a place called New Age Organics, and we got all of our stuff tested. And for pesticides as well, as cannabinoids and things like that. Heavy metals, molds, mildews, the full gambit before it became the standard. But that's why people paid more for... The stuff that we carried because we had to pay a little bit more to get the testing done and things like that and picked up from gardeners who were willing to go through the process of not spraying bullshit on their bud because thanks for some sharing people, your garden man yeah no always hey, awesome time. 
It's that triple burger. Beautiful. Good it's job. cool that you and, and uh, the Tricomb Forge over there are both growing uh, the triple burger. I'm getting yeah. excited this week. We're going to be trimming it. Uh, it's the first couple big giant colors that we pulled out of there are starting to get dry enough. So we're going to be trimming on a couple of them. Nice. Yeah, I feel a little naked only growing two lights. But uh, last year, my uh, AC kind of ran overdrive and I just said, okay, for the summer, I'm only going to run two lights. And I'm, I'm totally glad because, the, you know, the heat, uh, it got to about 80, 82 in there some days. And it, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I mean, my weed was still good. But, uh, I mean, it was probably about 3% worse. And, like, uh, I just, that ain't my style, man. So I'm glad I did it this way because the weed's been just fire the whole way. So. A little bit tighter than normal, but uh, I'm making it work. <laughs> well, I imagine if you had four lights going when the AC oh went down, God. you would have been hurting. Oh, right. Well, no. So that AC, that one, dude, oh, my God. That Ideal Air, 36,000 BTU, I've had running pretty much nonstop for nine years. The one that went out is the Daikin that was supposed to be the top of the line, of this and that. And uh, the repair guy came out and he goes, yeah, man, it sucks. You just, uh, it's basically like just getting into a camera and you just, you know, there's the one out of a hundred that doesn't work right. He's like, you just got a lemon. It's like, oh, great. Cool. <laughs> That's the thing. Shit happens, man. Manufacturing is fucking complicated and to do it right at scale is difficult. Occasionally a lemon slips off. There's iPhones that are lemons. There's Androids, like the biggest companies that make millions and millions of phones still fuck it up time to time and so they end up getting sold to smaller markets or as like uh refurbished or whatever they get sent back and fixed up and and resold as a you know a little bit cheaper but it that shit happens and it's just inconvenient when it happens when you most need it you know when it's fucking cranking it's hot yes and now they're like oh that part is actually back ordered and i can't fix it today i'll come back on monday or whatever you know and hopefully i'll have it then yeah it was tough I'm curious. Jack, you, got anything, you got anything going on in your garden, Jack? We just saw what's going on in Noah's garden. I've been uh, unfortunately delayed, thankfully, though, because I was actually a little worried power was going to go out with this whole quote unquote hurricane. And then we had an earthquake oh, here in LA. Okay. But no, I've been uh, lazy, admittedly. I've been <laughs> busy with life and, and work and working more on 50 strains of purple than uh, spending awesome. time in the garden. I'm more than 50% done. I'm like probably 30 or 40 strains in. I've got like 10 or 20 left to go nice and uh so I, i've actually been grinding on it recently got like a couple of days i did like a couple pages of just put a few hours in got all the research and wrote it out pulled out my notes my old fucking it's funny i have these old notebooks from like 10 years ago that i'll fucking be referencing but handwritten well, how cool is that to just sit there and read through that dude just to re relive it kind of as you read through it's consistent because like my memory is sometimes better than I fucking remember. Like uh, imagine I, I would have thought my memory was worse. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, I got like four out of the five or six descriptions that when I wrote it fresh, you know, I was like thinking about that strain and then sometimes referencing other people's notes. They think similar things that I think. So it's good for consistency uh, to see nice. that I'm not the only one who's smelling and tasting and feeling some of the effects and things like that. But it's been a really fun process. This one's taken a lot longer, but so it's got to be feel good when you can, you know, devote some time to it, get a big chunk done. And you look back and be like, yeah, I just got X amount done. That's got to feel good, you know? Oh, for sure. It's uh, it's rewarding in that regard. And the other thing is like so many people um, tell me how much they love the book and it like, that's rewarding too. And I, and I'm not the smoke up my own ass, but <laughs> I've met a couple of people like in real life here that have purchased books or like my wife, her old job bought a few copies and then like 
some of those people bought them and like one person brought it to uh work at their like weed job and they set it on their coffee table and like i'll go see a group of these people at that event and they're like wait you're jack green you're the one who wrote that book like i fucking love that book i on my break every day i hit my vape pen fucking flipping through pages and like so that motivates me a lot to like give people that experience because like that's kind of what it was for me is uh reading like sub cool books like the dank and dank 2.0 and a lot of the uh you know old can of bible type stuff uh to go through there and, and there hasn't been modern really renditions as much as i would like to see so and i think you know if you want to do something uh yourself i think you can do it exactly how you want to do it so that is what makes mine a little bit different is uh all the other i can of Bibles or other books of the past, like subcools were all about his own strains or the can of Bible reference, kind of like, you know, whatever he felt the top ones were. And I think everybody has a different perspective on that. So that's what kind of makes it fun to at least document because there's thousands of strains now. And I'm just like highlighting yeah. my top 50, but that's like a snapshot in time. And I think we'll live for some people. Like I know Tao is a collector. <laughs> he has fucking a whole library of, uh, he probably has every single one of the ones I just named and many more. So it's uh, cool to be a small part of that. It's going to be, you know, what you have to do is you have to order a reprint of the first and then be able to have package deals so you can sell the, the books together. You know, one and That's two the plan. People. I love it. Uh, with the pre-order, I'm going to see how many want a copy of Green because I'm running down to like my last box. I have a few first editions, funny enough, because a few people backed out of orders. So I have like a, a, a third of a box or something, maybe like 10 of those. Uh, then, you know, probably under 30 of the uh, second edition so when those are gone they're gone but like you said when i'm printing the 50 strains of purple i'm going to talk to the guy at my place he's right up the road from me i love it he's fucking awesome i've probably told this story in the past but he's like from south africa and a uh, big fan of cannabis apparently and he's like where i'm from they have medicine man and like we talked about durban poison and like it was in the book and so uh, he really appreciated that and he asked if he could print himself a copy of the book and i said of course like you know you know you don't have to pay me or whatever he could have done it anyway but he, the fact that he even like asked he's like i really appreciate what you're doing and like i want to copy for myself yeah, that's respectful i love that yeah he was really cool. I, I put me down for a copy of one of the first editions i'll send you the cash we'll talk in the group chat i put me down for one of the first editions i've been meaning to do it i'm gonna right. uh i'll have you personalize it. i'm gonna I'll give it as a gift to our family members for sure man i'll uh we'll definitely link up about that but it, it's been a, a fun process and the the fact is like it's still only a paperback and like a physical copy like i haven't made an ebook i tried to do an ebook and like i think uh google books like rejected it because maybe they were not friendly to cannabis at the time and that like uh sent me back a little bit and i just haven't really tried other places but i think that'll be a thing in the future but for now like i love the fact that it's actually something physical like i have a couple of them right over here and it's just something you can grab and sit around it's meant to be a coffee table book it's uv resistant it can be sitting sitting out in the light and it won't fade and get uh sort of worn as quick as uh, some other books would so it's, definitely yeah, it's, a like fun a, one. it's like a so like on a much smaller scale like the more common kind of thing that would be similar would be just a slap you know the people that has a slap your slap is just yours is a giant flex because it's a book that you wrote yourself you put a lot of time into and effort and it's a fucking awesome book so it's just like to have that to pass out as a business card we'll say you know what i mean that's just fucking cool man congratulations it's cool it's been a journey that's the thing is like it wasn't like a overnight process you know it was like 10 years of trying stuff in the medical market or more and then like continually now growing and like being able to include pictures of buds that i've grown myself and like in some cases they're testers and i'm like one of the 
few or first people that posted it online. And so to expose people to strains that maybe didn't even get released, but were kind of put it, it, it feels to me like the Pineapple Express, like as a Ohio boy growing up in Cleveland, like watching fucking that movie and things later on, uh, it just kind of, it's funny to have something that like, you know, no one else is smoking on it. Cause like you grew it, even if other people eventually get that strain, like you're oh, the yeah. only one who has that pheno and you're the only one who had that harvest and your harvest is like as big as a homegrown might get, like it's still, you know, a relatively small amount in the grand scheme of everything. I think that's kind smoking. of the, you described like the heart of a pheno hunter. It's kind of what is one of the things that try, I consider myself a pheno hunter. And it's one of those things that drives me. I want to find that unicorn, that thing that nobody's smoked before, that really unique that you want to run around and have everybody smoke. Be like, try this stuff, you know, this is unique. This is great. That's what it's all about. It's like having something like you said the other day, you just smelled something and it didn't smell like anything else you've ever smelled before. And like, it maybe wasn't even something that you could describe, which is awesome because it's like, you're giving yourself new experiences and something that you already, you know, enjoy and love cannabis. You've got like GG4 and a variety of strains that you know and love and work for you, but then you get to find one and it like rings your bell in a whole different way or gives you an experience. Like I just growing plumeria. Now my plumeria has bloomed for the first time. Like I'm so excited about that to go out and smell that flower, you know, and like just growing flowers is fun. New flowers. My oh, neighbor absolutely. has a different color plumeria. I'm with you, man. All plants, even like I'm stupid, giddy, stupid schoolboy, giddy. Every day I go outside and I check on my potato plants. The first time growing potatoes, and I got purple potatoes and I was excited the other day because I was seeing a bunch of, I think there were white flowers, but then I saw one that was like a pinkish flower. I'm like, how am I getting two colors on the same plant? What's going on? And I'm just stupid excited over, I don't even know what, I didn't even look up what to look for on potatoes. I know, don't know what the hell I'm doing other than I've just got it in good soil, but I'm having a hell of a time growing up, man. It's fun. That's the beauty of uh, being a gardener, farmer, being in nature, getting your hands dirty. Um, my neighbor who asked me like, would I give my plumeria? she was like, you should fertilize it. And then I ended up, you know, not fertilizing it, just giving it organic, you know, soil and uh, worm castings. And she's like, you need to help me out with my plumeria. So I went over and I, you know, gave her like the full gambit, like every, all my best stuff, uh, good worm castings, like some of Brandon's Bokashi earthworks, uh, Bokashi and some of his inputs, I watered it nice and heavy. And literally like two or three days later started having blooms start to grow out of it. And she like, I saw her walk her dog and do a little happy dance. It's like this 80 year old lady. And uh, it was just so awesome, man, that feeling to give somebody else the excitement. And her plant is even much larger than mine. It has like a lot more sites. And uh, it seemed like it was just waiting. It just needed a little bit more, probably nitrogen and, and phosphorus or something. Microbes. But just needed those microbes. The microbes. It kicked it all into gear. And I just like topped it off with a, a nice little uh, rice hull kind of uh, mulch, which I prefer for this area. It works out. It's light. That's and awesome. Yeah, it, it, it's it's I love helping people out if you can to give them that little bit of excitement and enjoy. And hers is going to be like a purple and reddish kind of plumeria where mine is yellow and white. So it's kind of cool to see the different expressions even within, uh, you know, that flower. And I'll always be excited to garden. I'm probably going to end up getting a, a little spot at my community garden eventually because I went I drove past it the other day. And some of these people are absolute pros like <laughs> It's the most bountiful. It looks like fucking out of imagine, oh, imagine like community garden gardens are awesome, man. They're so freaking awesome. I love community gardens because you can 
you can just go and even if maybe you don't have the time for a garden, but you have time to go spend a day in the garden, maybe. And the benefit that you get just from gardening and for a day and you help the whole community, whether you decide you want to take some, but maybe you don't even like vegetables, but I tell you what, just get in there and like weeding for a day. You think that sounds terrible, but you'd be surprised how you feel afterwards. So I don't know. I, I love the idea of community gardens. My mother, <laughs> bless her heart. She, got a hold of the community she lives way up north from here kind of in a low population but it's a that's kind of a thing that the older generations of michigans either move up north where it's lower population or they move down south to like way south like florida <laughs> where it's warmer uh, but anyhow so she did the move up north thing and uh she got a hold of her she went to start going to the uh like the the township meetings and stuff and she raised money and they took this plot of land and started a community garden and uh, i'm all the time getting pictures of all these amazing different vegetables and all the people just love it because there's a walking trail around it so now you've got people walking around the trail looking at the garden they're grabbing vegetables getting home and you know being able to feed people it's just it's pluses all around i love that stuff well, and ours, I guess I talked to a couple of people who have a spot and they're kind of encouraging me to get into it as well. Um, if they'll see like somebody's garden, maybe not doing the best, maybe they didn't get there to water it and they'll help out if they're there. Like, you know, see like, oh, that plant's going to die like today if nobody gets to it. And maybe it, they saw yesterday it was like looking bad and then nobody got to it the next day. And they're like, all right, I'm going to go throw a little water on there and, and help them out. So everybody kind of, and like you're saying, when they, they build a little walking trail around it then everybody's eyes are on it they're probably walking more than they were before because they're like yeah. i'm gonna go see my plants and then when they're there like oh you know maybe they catch the grasshopper or moth or butterfly or caterpillar or whatever that goes on that needs to be addressed or just appreciated for like the beauty like uh, a lot of people here in the council meetings advocate growing milkweed because that's what the uh butterflies live on and, and i think reproduce through and i think that's one of the only plants matthew might know more about that and correct me if i'm wrong but it's uh it's awesome to see the little communities come together and really growing your own food then you are ensuring yourself a food supply that's clean local and you know it can be abundant you can even if you don't love tomatoes maybe you like uh, tomato sauce or maybe you can make your own ketchup at home for the first time try it yourself there's recipes out there and uh, do it the old school natural ways and you might be blown away with how much better it can be or yeah or you might just love growing and you can have a huge amount of i don't care you name it zucchini that's a good one you can always get a ton of zucchini out of one plant and maybe you can't even eat a third of those many zucchinis you can collect those though and you can bring them to the local food pantry or you know things like that and somebody else is going to eat those or if you you know have a job you bring them to your work there's usually somebody always is going to grab those or like peppers brandon rust i just saw him with a post he had a shirt full of peppers <laughs> like like a like he went out to the thing like like a kid going halloween <laughs> yeah. you know shirt just stuffed full of peppers and then he dumps it on the table and the funniest part to me he then pulls peppers out of his pockets and then dumps those on the table and he's going to be making hot sauces and stuff. So, you know, it, it can be put to good use by doing things like that sauces or and when you make that stuff, it's like, like a million times better than store-bought. It's just so good on tomato sauces, on hot sauces. I love it. I did that. Last I never, I never bring up flowers, but uh flower gardening is like a big thing in my family. My uh, late grandma with a big, huge flower garden. And to this day, my mom is too big time, big time. Like, I should post some pictures in our group chat of my mom's flower garden. It's insane, but my grandma's was really insane. And every single year, I give my mom a, a rare plant. I usually get her pronounce. That's her favorite. But I've also got her daphne bushes. She loves that. And um, I got a lot of like, hydrangeas. Like I, ha I actually have a pretty insane flower collection myself. 
but uh, I love growing flowers. Um, and I believe that that's where my passion for growing cannabis, my uncle has told me it's in my blood from my grandma. She was always a big time farmer, vegetable farmer and a flower gardener. And I totally dig all that stuff. I love gardening period. So. I think that absolutely helps because it, like, unlike myself, the first plant I grew was cannabis. <laughs> like I taught myself through all the fucking grow books and internet forums and all the trial and error and like OGs kind of taking me under their wing. Like, Hey, this is how you do this or this is how you do that. And uh, even fucking hydro store salespeople uh, learning the hard way sometimes to uh, maybe listen a little less and uh, or, or or spend a little bit less and do some research on products that they recommend and the prices and things like that. But uh, another great couple in the community is Crispy and Smot. They are uh, growing their own tomatoes over there. I'm seeing and I've just seen them recently been making some tomato sauce, it looks like. Uh, like Spartan kind of mentioned in the past, like uh, even like Romas or whatever, you could boil them up. It just takes a little longer or whatever. But uh yeah, making your own. Romans are actually the best because they have a low uh, moisture content. They're more like a thick, hearty one. It doesn't take as long to boil up. That's what takes the longest on the tomato sauce, but I think that's kind of a key because it takes so long. That's why it's better. But low and slow is regular, always the best. Yeah, if you use even, you could even use like I love using the little grape tomatoes or the cherry tomatoes because you can get a billion of those and they just keep producing. You can just boil those and, and make your own tomato sauce with just those little guys. They're just super juicy, so you got it's going to take longer to boil off all that excess water until you get to a nice sauce consistency. That stuff is just as awesome. Some of them are sweet, but there's so many. They're a place, sadly, that just shut down. I wish I would have taken advantage of it sooner. They used to like advertise like 49 or 51 like tomato varieties available here, like from seed. Nice. And a lot of them were like uh, just crazy little cherry tomatoes, but they'd be like purple with like a green star and like a little bit of touch of orange, like just crazy exotic kind yeah, of colors. I've got, I grew some orange ones that were sun golds and they were super sweet, like you're saying. And I made tomato sauce out of those and it was so yummy. But then I, my favorite ones just to eat, they're called midnight snacks and they have a, like a really dark black top. And on the bottom it starts green and then it'll blush red. Those are so good. They're kind of like real meaty. So, I don't know. I really love them. That's cool, man. I think that it's awesome that, you know, a lot of tomato varieties are still grown and are out there where like not so many apples, for example, I think it got narrowed down a lot. Uh, I mentioned kind of the cosmic crisp being one of my recent favorites, but I guess there used to be hundreds of apple varieties and now there's probably like the big five or seven. And uh, thankfully it's branching out, but even like corn, like the commercial, whatever yellow corn, I feel like is not as good as like the white sweet corn in my opinion. So it's just like, yeah. I hope that that stuff stays alive and uh, run some tricolor corn right now, or it's like Indian corn. It's like really a bunch of different colors. So I'm excited. Is for it that. smaller? I Typically, yeah, I feel like that stuff is a lot smaller. Yeah, it's smaller. And I'm starting to see the tassels on the top, but I don't haven't had any, any ears start to form yet. And I'm like, man, I'm getting close to the end of the season. Let's start doing stuff. <laughs> I'm getting get to work. Yeah. Maybe being smaller, it doesn't take as long to bloom. Yeah, maybe not. I think I'll probably I was my my plan was to just do like some popcorn with it or something. So as long as That's I get fun. a year or two, I can at least get a bowl of popcorn. I wonder what it would look like popped. I've never seen rainbow popped corn. I don't know. I think the inside of the because you remember popcorn, you're looking at the inside, it's like pops it inside. Right, off. yeah. So it turns I think yellow. the inside might still be the same color white. I don't know. Right. That's true. I've never yeah, tried it. A, I don't know. We'll find out, hopefully. If harvest, probably not too many have uh, tried it for themselves, so it would be we'll really cool to... if it was different colors. That'd be really cool. 
that'd be the market right there. There you go. And then the butter, you have to medicate it. So medicate the butter that you put on the popcorn and it's all tricolor. Spartan at 2025 events. You're going to have a whole field of tricolored corn and then just, I'm just watching all the popcorn show eating popcorn the whole time. Feeling good. <laughs> Get your popcorn ready. I think Terrell Owens said that one time. Uh, old sports reference. He sure did. <laughs> Same man asking me in chat, what's my the date of my average freeze date? I don't really know, honestly. I, I haven't looked it up uh, recently, but I think because we're in the uh, El Nino year and the weather forecast that I've been looking at, I think the last 90-day forecast is we're going to be warm this fall. So I'm, I'm going to have an extended season. I'll probably be okay. It's just my first year growing corn, and, I'm, and I went with this corn that I'm not really very familiar with, so. It's always, it's all, I like just throwing new stuff. I'm doing acorn squash too for the first year. I've already eaten one. It was yummy. And it looks like there's three more on the vine. So I can't wait to eat those. In Ohio, we would say corn's got to be knee high by the 4th of July. July. Yep. That's sweet corn, man. (laughs) That's the good stuff. What's funny, because I used to call it Ohio sweet corn. And then like I find later, it's actually Georgia sweet corn is where the white sweet corn comes from. But Ohio has very good soil to grow it. And a lot of my local farmers, we'd go to the farmer's markets and get it from little like mom and pops and uh, legit, like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, like farm stand, you could just go on the side of the road right next to the farm. They have a giant bin and it's like so cheap that I can't even believe it because where I live, food is so expensive. But when I'm back in Ohio for 4th of July, I just like indulge and uh, it is great. It's a a different atmosphere and and we definitely have that here, but uh, just like I said, more expensive but definitely worth, I think health is wealth. I've recently cut a lot of sugar and, and fast food out of my diet and I'm feeling so much better. I'm 10 pounds down, fucking saving nice. money, feeling better. Life is so much better. I, I think anybody out there who's like myself, who's kind of hooked on the sugar, cut back if you can. <laughs> the processed shit, shit is, uh, it's horrible for you. It is, but sugar is so tasty. It is, and it's addicting. I mean, I, I fell victim of it. Uh, it's convenience. Like I was working a lot during the summertime so i would just grab like a muffin or like even like fucking pop tarts in the morning like something shitty and but it's sugar and carbs or whatever gets you going keeps you sustained for a little bit of time but the inflammation and and pain that i like i was treating a lot more with cannabis i'm smoking less now crazy enough (laughs) because i'm eating healthier and i'm 10 pounds lighter i don't have as much neck and back pain and my wrist and you know joints my hands don't hurt as much so it's a definitely a good life change and I, i was one of those people who was sort of a hypocrite, you know, smoking the organic bud and like not having pesticides, but then eating fucking McDonald's from time to time. And no, time you're to time not the only one. I love me some fast food too, man. Oh, it's tasty. I grew up when on I'm, the shit. I, when I'm high, I really want the fast food. <laughs> That's like a good The combo. thing that gets me is that um, like sugar especially is like such a, an important aspect of cooking like as like a component, like physically because of the chemistry and, and how it, how it binds or Otherwise, interact with other things. So in some ways, it almost feels like, like for me, cooking with butter is like that. Or like for a long time, I would skimp on the butter, not because I was worried about health reasons necessarily, somewhat maybe, but I just felt like it'd be like too much. Like, oh, I don't need it for taste. <laughs> it's not there for taste. It's there so that it coats the pan or that, you know, certain ingredients, you know, bind well or don't bind together uh, as it were. So like, um, oh, it's you know, being cognizant. That yeah, that's true. Too. Oh. 
I mean, yeah. I mean, that definitely a is a factor. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, I like salted butter. Of it. Oh, over, salted uh, butter is salted amazing. Butter. Yeah, it's way, yeah. I prefer <laughs> salted. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. I think that is the uh, the way. But it's something that kind of uh, startled me with the sugar thing was when I looked at like 1800s versus 1900s versus today and they used to only have like a couple pounds per year of sugar and then it went up to like 90 and like some people are like over 100 150 pounds of sugar per year that they're consuming and yeah, it's, what's the lifespan look like we're living longer we are living longer that's no for sure sugar. but there's also other things that go into that <laughs> yeah but the other thing is lifespan is actually starting to go back down with pharmaceutical deaths early deaths and other things like that depression people taking their lives earlier for a number of reasons either overdosing or taking their life sadly um well part of that is um part of that is like uh you know i love that scene in uh, breaking bad where a spoiler alert i guess um you know walt is talking to jesse and uh you know he has a drug problem and walt's like if you take this money you know you're gonna die in like two weeks or a month or something because like he had no discipline you know he just he'd buy it uh, an exorbitant amount of drugs, do too much of it at a time, and OD. So, and I think that's true for a lot of things. For a lot of people, what keeps them, um, and I'm not considering myself exclusive to this set of people, where if they had more money or they had more resources or whatever or access, they might, uh, you know, lack the discipline to be responsible. Um, of course, that becomes a question of regulations and stuff for some people. But for me, it's just like, you know, knowing to not like eat, like I can't eat super rich foods too much. Like it will be uh, difficult for my body to process. And so I wonder sometimes for people, it's like, uh, you know, do you have a disorder, quote unquote, or is it that you're eating like 400 times the amount of sugar that most people ate up until like 200 years ago? You know what I mean? It's okay if you don't know what I mean. No, no, I, I certainly <laughs> agree with, with what you're saying. Some people it impacts a lot worse than others. Some people can have like sugar and, and be fine with it or fast food from time to time and be fine with it. Other people will eat it every single day, multiple times a day, or just have like exorbitant amounts in each serving. Like they're going to have the extra large Mountain Dew with the, you know, whatever sugary, you know, dessert and everything else. So it, it moderation, I think is key. Everything in moderation, including moderation. Some people try to moderate so much i think that sometimes the stress of worrying about what they're eating can be actually worse than just eating something and then being like fuck it i had a little cheat meal who cares i'm gonna put it in the past and then try and you know do better or whatever moving forward but some people beat themselves up like oh i can't believe i ate that cookie or that chocolate cake or whatever the fuck and then they you know make themselves feel guilty about it and then that guilt and stress you beating yourself up like actually takes a toll on you like cognitively like your self-image how you feel about yourself is important you shouldn't be able to say like hey you know what i'm allowed to have shit from time to time and not beat myself up for it but at the same time not making it like a regular thing is probably a healthy habit for sure yeah, the yeah whole, that mentality uh, is a good point yeah the whole technique i would use for the situations like that is i like call it cheat days if there's something i know that i am addicted to that i want to eat every freaking day but it's bad for me I'll pick a day, whatever, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's my cheat day. That's when I can eat that that thing, whatever it is. And then the rest of the week, I don't. And it's pretty hard to overdo it when you do it like that. I think that's definitely Speaking of which, what do you guys think of, um, what do you guys think of like, uh, like cannabis infused uh, drinks and things like that? 
to to me, I'm not a, I don't see a whole lot of, uh, to me, I would be afraid of like drinking too much at once and then like having an issue. And I experienced like so I drank in a whole can of something and didn't feel it. So I haven't experienced alcohol drinks <laughs> no, like cannabis infused. Oh, I drank a milk once that definitely affected me. And it was really good because well, I drank it, I pounded it like it like it was um a race. You you like nice. a strong edible effect. You eat a cookie yeah, a day. I but I wasn't that will zonk me out. <laughs> or worse. Yeah, I'm a major edible eater and rso doser too Me so too. i love the edible high if i had to pick just one and be an edible yeah. high. i think that the liquid what do you think todd you think it hits harder or i mean faster quicker too? quicker yeah, yeah. Okay. not quicker. as long lasting oh. i think though yeah you're probably right i think it runs through your blood like you piss it out it's like a, a quick yeah. it's almost like a dab versus like a you, something else you know that's that's how i knew it was that that did it because i was like at an event and i was eating stuff you know all along and like i said that it takes a lot but when i drank that thing i drank the whole thing and like pretty quickly i could feel it. i was like yeah man that shit was real well milk has fat in it usually depending on the milk that they use and that is known to make like even with like a brownie the activation more potent yeah, and more effective yeah, yeah and i think that yeah like bang is that what you're saying tao like bang the original one of the original ways that yeah. people consumed cannabis yep they would uh like boil Cash it with the, with the butter yeah and they got really with the milk high. rather, yeah. Oh. And other stuff. They hallucinate and shit. You can make a really good hot drink out of that, like a warm milk. Oh, infused. hot chocolate infused. Yeah, but it'll be good. All right, guys, I'm gonna get out of yeah, here. Yeah, it's getting close to my time, but I did want to shout out my good friends, Red Red Setter Farms and Becca Meets Canvas. They got married the other day. We were there to celebrate with them. It was freaking amazingly awesome. Hell yeah. Congratulations to them. I don't know if they're watching or not, but I'm going to run over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show. I'm sure that's going to be the majority of the topic today, just talking about that wonderful day. It's awesome to see the community come together and to celebrate. You know, we had, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll spill a little bit of the beans. We had a table for us that was table, where ours was table 15. And, uh, it was like all of the cannabis people, right? You know, for Crowley, you know, we'll talk about the next uh, the next show. But uh, at one point in in the service, my favorite part of the night, Becca comes up and uh, she she finally gets back to us. You know, we're at table fifteen, the cool table, and uh, she comes up and she goes, "Hi guys, I specifically came over here to to hang out with you and uh, Emily." Uh, shout anything grows says to her she goes becca welcome to table 15 <laughs> and she like bowed and we all stood up and bowed to her and it was an amazing time we were dying laughing so um we're gonna talk about those awesome moments at the next show michigan bros girl show we'll see you there in like 15 minutes much love everybody uh and you know as i always say we always win by just continuing to protect that home girl rights so keep growing everybody we'll see you next week Keep going, man. Peace out, Spartan. Much love, Spartan. And much love to uh, Becca and Rad. Huge fans of them and uh, so happy to hear that. That's uh, amazing. I love seeing cannabis couples come together. Lady Greenstock and I got married about, uh, you know, 420, 2020. So, you know, three years ago. And, yeah, congrats uh, to you and them. I'm, I'm, that's awesome. I love seeing the can of couples, you know, uniting. I think uh, finding somebody who has their... When I was in school for psychology, some people say birds of a feather flock together and then some 
say opposites attract. And I think there's some elements of both those things in probably every relationship, but I tend to think birds of a feather flock together. And if you can't, like my wife has talked about in her past relationships, she had people who she had to hide smoking from. And so that was like something that could not be on the table. And that was kind of the same for me. I didn't want to have to hide the fact that I was a cannabis user from my intimate partner. So the fact that we both use openly and, and don't have to, uh, you know, have any shame about that, or, you know, the fact that it's a priority, like something that, you know, we're going to make space for a grow. We're going to budget in if we need to buy stuff or when, if we want to try stuff, like that's not uh, going to be a big problem where if somebody's not a user, then they might be like, Hey, when we're looking at our budget, let's just cut that out. Cause you know, I don't do it. So who gives a shit, right? <laughs> so it's uh, easy to, I guess, see, uh, come to a good place with, with somebody who's got those commonalities and many other things as well, but I'm very happy for them and happy to see any of the uh, people in the community come together and, you know, share their love and get to celebrate it. Like uh, Spartan was sharing there, getting to go there. And uh, I'm sure there was plenty of great people from Michigan celebrating with them as well. So happy for them and great to see in here. Anything new and exciting over there for you, Tao? You uh, gonna wife up the mail lady, or uh, how's that saga going? No, now I moved, moved states. Yeah, oh yeah, so, uh, that's gonna be an issue. My poor, the dream my is poor. is gone. You're gonna have to be pen yeah, pals now. Lady. Well, stranger things have happened. <laughs> but I heard um, when I was a kid, somebody fell in love with the operator just by their voice when they called to like get you know so and so's like the number for like Papa right. Jones or something, and they and ended the up dumb. falling in love and getting married to the freaking operator without. I don't know if they ended up like meeting before how they end up linking up, but yeah, I don't know if that's a that's story, like something cause... from a TV show, man. That's so. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was the plot of a movie or something. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, but I feel like I, I was actually taught this in like a legitimate, uh, you know, circumstance. Maybe I just heard about it from fucking, you know, all the uh, crazy shit that gets spread around pre-internet days, uh, word of mouth. God, some of the uh, rumors and celebrity gossip and crazy shit that even like not even pre-internet but like y2k <laughs> like i just was watching something where people were like why were we so concerned that the world was going to end like going from 1999 well, to 2000 we were, we were concerned that the computers would mess up i guess and then the power the grid would go no down. the people oh, no, in charge that... made us the people in charge made us concerned of those matters they really they sold have never been a concern yeah obviously so that we could buy flashlights and a bunch of water bottles but... Yeah. <laughs> Water bottles. No, no, no planes fell from the sky. Unfortunately. No, certainly. And a zero did not become a one did not become a zero or uh, <laughs> vice versa, right? The whole thing was like I I my family was concerned that the grid was gonna go down, the power is gonna go out, the banks are gonna fail, oh like, my no gosh. one's gonna have money. I never heard any of that stuff. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah we, I had, totally see. we jokingly kind of I think were prepped, but we had our regular ass fourth of July or not fourth of July, uh New Year's party. You know, yeah. fucking 1999 going into 2000. So we had like, you know, people were drinking and fucking partying, but we just happened to have like lantern flashlights in case fucking the power went out or whatever. <laughs> Did you run outside? Yeah. I was looking. People to see were prepping here in California, and I was like, they they always hype it up. They do this shit all the time. They're like, oh, it's a Category Four, and it, sure enough, it was when it's in the middle it of the was, fucking ocean, and then it was, and then it was a two, and then by the time it hit Mexico, Baja area, it was a. Uh, landmass i should say it was a tropical storm and by the time it's to san diego i have been here experiencing hillary in a not very weatherproofed uh situation i'll say that i'm sitting next to a window fan that is blowing 
hair in. So uh, <laughs> it's not like I'm battening down the hatches. I, I didn't buy any sandbags like at one of the city's mayors suggested people do. And uh, I get they have to cover their ass and have people be prepared. But I did some things. I, I got water, food, charged up, got a whole bunch of random shit just in case. But you never know. I'm a victim of it. No, I'm not. I was going to get the shit anyway. And I was like, if it's going to be flooded out there, I'd rather not have to drive around after the show, essentially. So I just got some stuff done earlier in the week than I would have. But yeah, I don't know. Barely even felt the earthquake. It was like the tiniest rumble. I think it was a 5.1 though. So to the people in the LA area, I'm sure you felt it a little bit more significantly. But even then, like y'all are used to like six or sevens, really shaking shit. So did you feel it, Matthew? I should have asked Doc if he felt it. I didn't feel it at all. Uh, when yeah. was it? When did it happen? At like three thirty, I want to say. PM. PM today. No, nope. Can't say that I did. I have a screenshot of like the notification I got. I was like, did I feel an earthquake? Because like sometimes, uh, something will, you know, shake. That's not an earthquake, like a fucking giant truck driving by, or uh... <laughs> yes. I felt something that I was pretty sure it was an earthquake, like at like the dead of like, like 6am or something. And like, I was like, Oh, is this going to be the, is this going to be it? Because I felt it or perhaps just the reverberations of it or the aftershocks um, like a few weeks ago. And yeah, like thing is that people know that. I mean, uh, they say that the San Andreas fault line is going to be a problem. So, you know, they've been saying that since I was a kid. They've been making yes. memes that California was going to snap off and then go into the ocean and be an island and shit. Like, like the like the Superman plot where like Lex Luthor like nukes the coastline or whatever. So like California juts off and becomes its own island or something. Wasn't that? Uh... I think you're right. <laughs> I think there was a movie called San Andreas, like about the fault fucking massively collapsing and like cities uh, being swallowed up. But fortunately, uh, science fiction is not quite reality although they say that there could be like a giant volcano that erupts randomly you know there's a few massive ones like yellowstone i'll just keep living my life until that day and i'll be like i think uh just make sure to strike a good pose like they did in pompeii (laughs) like the dude who is uh you know pleasuring himself i think crispy (laughs) wannabe posted recently uh, or somebody else. I don't know if it was Crispy. I don't want to stick her on that one. But somebody uh, posted that recently, and I just had to have a laugh. That like they're like that's what they decided to do with their final moments. And I'm like, maybe he was just doing that anyway. They and might not like, have known. I mean, I'm not going to be stopped. Thing. Yeah, from what I understand about Pompeii, it was just like people got buried alive. It happened so fucking quick. So he was just. Uh... <laughs> but a lot of people do have that thought, like one last time before I go, like whether with their loved one or by themselves, I guess. So, however, you can make it happen. You know, Hopefully Brian for 20 PM in the chat is saying that uh, I wasn't totally off there. It looks like, um, you know, the software industry was having some issues with uh, uh, the dates from 1999 to 2000. So maybe there was something to it. But yeah, like planes falling out of the sky. Would it be irrevoc- irrevocable? Probably not. It was like banks, too, but, were, were worried about their systems being shut down because like the 99 yeah. or 2000 wasn't coded for. And the coding back then was so much simpler than it is now. Like we think about things now in modern times, but back then their codes were much simpler and on, on systems that could fail probably um, in much less uh, sophisticated ways than they might need to now for shit to go awry. But thankfully nothing happened and uh, 
still to this day most of the time he doesn't but you never know i mean thankfully it was minor hopefully we don't get whacked by a major hurricane or something on this coast i think the other coast is probably more at risk with as warm as the water was it was like 100 degree water in florida and whenever there's warm water there's usually pretty bad hurricane season afterwards so uh, hopefully that doesn't end up happening but there's a couple off the coast over there so we'll see uh, weather aside we got a little bit off topic this week chit chatted a little bit and uh, <laughs> sometimes cannabis related but the first hour we definitely got our science in and uh talked a lot of grow whether it was cannabis or other plants, which I think everybody should get into growing cannabis yeah. and everything else that you can. Concerning concerning the weather, though, I heard people, plants getting beat up by the weather. You know, they broke some branches. This dude lost his blueberry plant. That's a bummer. So, yeah, it is. It's all connected. <laughs> Prep for the storms. And, uh, yeah, with all that said, I'm going to pass it to first Matthew Gates for his final thoughts and shout outs. Yeah, I like that we just kind of um, attacked that paper at the beginning. We didn't. I didn't have any pomp and circumstance attached to it. I didn't know uh, anything about it, really. So I like that we kind of discovered it together. And I think it was more streamlined, which I kind of thought might be the case. So I'm glad that happened. Um, yeah, so for anyone who's interested, I've got... I'm still working on that AFID video. Uh, I've just been busy. And um, I'm also packing it full of information. And, and, and I want to make sure that I have, like you know, nice graphics and cool sound effects and I don't sound too monotonous. So all those things are important. Um, and if you want to check that out, you can check that out at my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, where I have that rest of my video. That's pretty nice. And you can also check me out at Zenthanol.com for professional inquiries. And I'm also writing a book right now. That's right. And it's going to be about cannabis pests, of course. Right. So um, just putting funny. my feelers out, letting people know. Yeah, thank you. Well, Jack, you were part of that inspiration. You and many other people have been like, I will pre-order the pre-order if you write a book. And I'm like, all right, well, I don't want to set a precedent, but um, message received. So I will definitely be putting my thoughts and uh, empirically informed opinions about cannabis pests. And, um, you know, as research comes out, I'll probably make uh newer versions and editions of that. So I'm excited that people are interested. Hey, you got to give the people what they want, right? Well, yes, we are... but this time it will be something that they can use and it won't be a, it won't be a cop out. <laughs> It'll be good info. I'm really excited to hear that. All the work that you do, in my opinion, has been great info. And uh, we're lucky to have you in this community sharing as much as you do publicly and uh, professionally. It is uh, a major help to not only myself, but so many others in the community. I've referenced your materials hundreds of times at this point and shared them with so many people that have been desperately struggling and been able to, from a distance, help them uh, through you know a complicated situation in their grow. And uh, to get through that with resources from somebody who's got a decade plus experience is a really awesome thing to have in my back pocket and uh you know capabilities to work with the people and next up we'll pass it over to noah vigro who's out of focus but in his garden and it looks beautiful still oh oh hey <laughs> yeah uh i'm uh just chilling here yeah i'm noah vigro with two e's i had a good time today uh, sorry, I missed the last couple of weeks. Uh, I always try to get a couple of trips in. Took my granddaughter to the beach. That was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, uh, if you have any questions for me, welcome to hit me up on Instagram and I'll see everybody next week. He's in love, Noah. Always great having you. I think it was there's a blur filter. It like uh, focuses just on the face and then it blurs the other stuff in the background. Oh, and, okay. uh, but it's all good. We saw 
earlier when he walked us through it was nice and crystal clear and we definitely got the vibes in the grow room there under the two thowies still cranking and uh, not overheating things still keeping it craft and dank i love seeing that i always love when you post on instagram those close-up bud shots i think i commented on one of the triple burger ones recently always uh, happy to see you still doing it noah crushing it great work over there thank you and uh, last and certainly not least of the panelists this evening is the american one as always, Jack, thanks for the impeccable hosting. And uh, it's good to hear from everyone on the panel. And yeah, Noah the Grower and Spartans, uh, that triple burger, whatever it is, those nugs are looking incredible. Yeah, very impressed. And uh, thanks for everyone in chat hanging out with us tonight. It's always good getting your questions and feedback. And yeah, always great to be here. I am the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore teams on the IG. So uh, hit me up over there and have a great week, everyone. Thank you so much, Tao, for joining us. Uh, always great to have you. And uh, I'm last, I guess. You can find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram. I'm Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. You could also email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. Or uh, if you want to get a copy of my book or contact me on my website, 50strains.com. 50 strains of green is on there. And I got some belt punch after you're available. Figure I'll end the show a little differently today and say cheers to everybody out there and take a bomb rip with you all. Hope you all have a great rest of your Sunday. Cheers. Keep growing, everyone. Peace and love, everybody. Catch you next week. Make sure to go check out Michigan Bros Grow Show over there. Spartan Grown is uh, hanging out with some really good people. So check them out if you're still looking for cannabis content. Otherwise, have a great week. Catch y'all next time. Peace and love. Grow is love. Peace out, all.